back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It is time for Keeping Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Tuesday, the 17th day of the month of May. Yes, a day later than normal, but hey, better late than never. <coughs> Excuse me. Damn cough. Still got that. No, day late, but still same excitement, same, uh, you know, motivation. A lot on my mind today. Mix in some football, even some hockey, some baseball as we go on. But, of course, got to start with the NBA playoffs where, you know, every series went deep in this uh, past round. Hell, we even got two game sevens on Sunday, although they both kind of turned into duds. But the bigger story, of course, was what happened in the nightcap. The bigger story is what happened between the Suns and the Mavericks, and now what happens after that. Yeah, we can sit here and give a lot of praise, a lot of adulation to Luka Doncic, because let's face it, you look at him coming into this series, if you're doing a draft between the Mavericks and the Suns, Luka is probably the first player that gets taken based on age, and skill level, but after him, you're probably taking at least four, maybe five guys off of the Phoenix Suns before you even look at, you know, Jalen Brunson or uh, Spencer Dimwitty or uh, Reggie Bullock or whoever you want to consider the third or fourth best player on the uh, Dallas Mavericks because this Phoenix Suns team was loaded. They had referred to this as the revenge season after coming so close to winning an NBA championship last year. They had the best record in the NBA this year and were looked at as overwhelming favorites in this series and one of the favorites in the NBA to win the entire thing. But what happened? What the hell happened on Sunday night, because we've seen ass kickings in the postseason before. Hell, we just saw one last week with the the Warriors uh, getting uh, torched in Game Five by the Memphis Grizzlies. The difference there is Golden State knew they had a backdrop there. They were up three games to one. They knew Game Six was in their building, and that the Grizzlies were going to be without Job Morant for the remainder of that series. So they knew they had wiggle room. We've never seen a home team get annihilated in a game seven to this level, to the point where you have one player on the opposing team 
outscored that team by himself in the first half, as Luka uh, would do. And the two stars, the two guys that are supposed to lead the way for the Phoenix Suns, Devin Booker and Chris Paul, were no-shows completely, especially in that first half going combined 0 for 11. And then there's the mystery surrounding DeAndre Aiden, where he's supposed to be a member of your big three. He's supposed to be one of your young building blocks and one of your stars moving forward on this team. Supposed to be the overwhelming advantage that you have over this Mavericks team because they don't have that kind of size in the paint. They don't have that kind of big man that's going to just clog up the area like that and play a tremendous defense at the same time. Why did he only play 17 minutes? It's one thing for him to be in foul trouble in the first half, but then over the remainder of the game, he plays only 17 minutes and for Monty Williams to come out after the game and say, oh, it's eternal? Internal, excuse me? What, what is that? And the, the Phoenix Suns, that, that was an all-around embarrassment in every shape and form. And yeah, uh, Booker's going to take his criticism. Monty Williams, even though he was the coach of the year, going to get criticized heavily for the DeAndre Aiden situation. Hell, DeAndre Aiden, this could have been his last stand with the Phoenix Suns, considering he's set to be, while restricted, he's set to be a free agent uh, this summer and wants a max contract. He wants to get paid like a big-time star. And And the way he's handled himself, the way he has represented himself uh, there so far shows that he probably deserves that money. He probably deserves to uh, get paid, you know, that max contract that you're seeing so many of these young players get once they complete their rookie deal. Does that push him out the door? But of course, the biggest criticism of all of this and This is something I I said from the beginning of this series. Had to happen. If the Phoenix Suns did not win a championship. Because this was probably this guy's best chance and maybe last chance to get an NBA championship. And that's Chris Paul. Now he played great in the first eight games of this postseason. Including in the... The closeout game of round one against the Pelicans won a perfect 18 for 18 from the field. But after game two of this series, he disappeared. From the second he turned 37 years old, he fell off a cliff and was a non-factor for the Suns uh, through the remaining five games of this series. And the, the thing that's... Uh, you have to respect Chris Paul's accomplishments in this league. Uh no, over 10-time All-Star, <laughs> so many times, I think it's nine all and be a defensive um, player. And we've seen, you know, in the last day, Patrick Beverly, one of his all, old foes, seemingly doing cartwheels across ESPN, ripping this guy left and right. And while, you know, Beverly... It comes off as 
extremely personal. It comes off as, uh, you know, over the top, especially when you consider how he overreacted last year in the playoffs and shoved Chris Paul from behind. He's kind of right in what he his, you know, you know everything he was saying in, in that Chris Paul does get this free pass that seemingly no other star in this sport gets. Chris Paul, you know, whenever Paul George gets eliminated from the postseason and plays bad, we shred him. Carmelo Anthony. He's had a Hall of Fame career. He's likely not going to get a ring. He got excoriated for all those postseason failures with the Nuggets and the Knicks. James Harden, he has as well. I'll get to him in a second. So why does Chris Paul get that free pass? No, it's okay. The media needs to realize it's okay to rip Chris Paul. The world is not going to end tomorrow if you criticize Chris Paul. What? Just because he's got all those cute State Farm commercials, he is the head of the NBA Players Association, does a lot of charitable work, seems to have a great family, is a tenacious worker, and just been a pest defensively over his career. Maybe it's because he's a, you know, if he was 6'5", maybe he'd get more criticism. If he was the size of LeBron James, maybe he'd get more you know, backlash when his team comes up small. But because he's listed at 6'1", although I believe he's more likely 5'11", he gets the free pass that most NBA superstars don't get. And it seems kind of ridiculous. But at the same time, while I'm sitting here ripping Chris Paul and ripping the Phoenix Suns for what is an embarrassing performance, Got to give credit to the Dallas Mavericks. Got to give credit to Luka Doncic and Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd had a perfect game plan against the Phoenix Suns after, um, you know, as this series went on. And that was attack Chris Paul. Don't let him come up the court easy, set up uh, a play uh, without a man on him. You know, force him to be you know, a stationary player. And Luca, you know, Luca just continues to grow and amaze us before our eyes. Because the one thing I worry about with for Luka Doncic is him falling into what Dirk had to deal with for years, and that's the Mavericks never found him that Robin. They never found him that one A or you know, B-plus type player to pair up with him like David Robinson had at the end of his career with Tim Duncan or Tim Duncan had with Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili or LeBron had to leave Cleveland to go get Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh or, you know, Garnett, Pierce, and Allen had to forge together. No, Dirk, no, outside of having Steve Nash early in his career, he didn't have another superstar player by his side through his career. That's to me has made his 2011 championship run even more impressive. And 
that should make this run that Luca is on here in this postseason what to me it's just the beginning of things to come even more impressive now as well as Dimwitty and as especially as well as Brunson have played in this postseason now that they're not star players they're good NBA players are good starters in this league, although you know, Dimwitty comes off the bench mostly. He plays starter-like minutes. And you, know, you can't always account for guys like this having that kind of performance. So, and as we go deeper in the postseason, it only becomes tougher, especially now that you're going up against a team in the Golden State Warriors that has won three championships in the last six or seven years. That has at least two, maybe three, depending on how Draymond Green is viewed at the end of his career. Future Hall of Famers on the team. Has a head coach that won championships as a player and was able to be the right guy at the right time in the right place to turn this group of players into a from a very good team into a dynasty. And while they were without Kerr, the final three games against the Grizzlies, he's cleared protocol. He's going to be back ready for to coach this team for game one starting tomorrow night in San Francisco. The question becomes for the Warriors, how do you guard Luka? Because for as much as at times Luka Doncic can be a liability defensively, at times he can have one or two plays during a game where you're looking at him saying, what the hell are you doing? The fact that a guy that, while he's not fat by any means, he's not built like an Adonis, he's not you know built like LeBron James or like Giannis Antetokounmpo, some of the things that he can do with how far out he can shoot, with how he can uh, drive the paint and create these circus-like shots, how do you stop that? How do you guard that? You know he's getting his, he's going to wake up, roll out of bed, and put up 30. And as we've seen in this uh, postseason, Brunson's gone off at times. Hell, Dimwitt, he's coming off of a 30-point game in Game 7 against Phoenix, so he's probably feeling pretty good about himself. How do you stop that? Because it was, let's face it, it was a struggle for this Warriors team against Memphis. It was, now that Game 4 without John Morant, they didn't get a lead until a minute left, and that's mostly because the Grizzlies couldn't make a shot going down the stretch, and Steph finally made a three-pointer and just took five minutes to uh, put in a bunch of foul shots. And then in game six, you had Clay Thomas, Clay Thompson, excuse me, step up and have his best game of the year, show some signs of vintage Clay. And to me, game six was more of a, you know, the Grizzlies running out of gas emotionally, even though Brooks and Bain played well. You got nothing out of the rest of that team. And with the Warriors at home, they were going to finally put their foot on their throats and put an end to this thing. 
but I'm going to be watching to see what is it going to be a group assignment by the Warriors, always switching off someone, taking the challenge of going up against Luka? Or is someone going to take it upon themselves? Is it going to be, you know, Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, Poole, Clay Thompson? Who's going to be that guy that at least attempts to slow him down? Because you could somewhat calm him down. Maybe that puts the pressure on these other guys. Maybe it puts more pressure on Spencer Dinwiddie, who I could tell you at, at times with the uh, Brooklyn Nets, there was a lot of J.R. Smith with him where he would hoist up these shots where you're saying, no, 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 and then all of a sudden it goes in and you're like, okay, don't do that again. Now, that this, this series is going to be very fun. I, I'm not sure who expected the Dallas Mavericks to get this far but it's a incredible run that they are on especially with just knocking off a team that in many people's minds was the favorite to come out of the western conference and reach the nba finals all right gotta take first break here but a lot i want to talk about of course gotta turn my attention to the uh eastern conference which uh How's it going, Philadelphia? I'll talk about that, preview the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, mixing some hockey. What a wild weekend it was in the, the NHL. And, of course, the story that never seems to end, Tom Brady. So a lot to get to over the next about 40 minutes or so here. Please sit back, relax, help. Put your feet up on the table if there happens to be one in front of you. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Hi, James Harden. How's it going today? Um... You know, I know it sounds like sour grapes by me considering my team got knocked out in the first round. The Brooklyn Nets are going to be that only team that gets swept in the, this postseason. 
at least it looks like that on on the surface right now but i took a certain level of enjoyment certain level of satisfaction with how the philadelphia 76ers got eliminated from the postseason last week by the miami heat first getting blown out in game five and then you know, with uh, their failure at home, led by another great performance by Jimmy Butler. And that had to sting for the 76ers fan base. Because let's face it, that's a guy that they should have kept. You look at, just based on the reaction at the end of the game between Joel Embiid and Jimmy Butler. Those guys are like brothers still to this day. I, I don't think Jimmy was just speaking to hear the sound of his own voice when he said uh, to Joel afterwards that I wish we were still teammates. They had drawn that kind of bond together. But instead, the Sixers chose to give five years at $180 million to Tobias Harris. And it has you know, stopped them from keeping around somebody that was an integral part of that team. Hell, it cost them two players on that team, probably Jimmy Butler and G- keeping J.J. Redick, who was one of the true leaders there in uh, Philadelphia. And that's what's led them to this point, this year-and-a-half pursuit that concluded this past February when they got James Harden. And right now, can you look at that trade and say that either team has won it. Because while the Nets got contributions from Seth Curry and by Andre Drummond, the main pieces in that trade were Ben Simmons and James Harden. Ben Simmons has not stepped on the floor for the Brooklyn Nets, whether it be due to anxiety, disorders, mental health problems, uh, back issues. At the same time, the Sixers thought they were getting their 1A for Joel Embiid. And instead, he's been a role player. Outside of game four, he never led this team in shot attempts. Very rarely put up 20 plus points uh, a game. Seemed like he wanted to just be a distributor rather than the awesome offensive force that we've seen from this guy over the last you know, 10 years. And some of it is because of his body betraying him. But you got to first look at the fact that he betrayed his body by letting himself get out of shape when he forced his way out of Houston. That led to injuries with the the Nets. That led to uh, a second injury with the Nets. At least that's what he claims it was uh, this past year. And he forced his way out there as well. Got to where he wanted to be all along because Daryl Mowry was the same general manager that allowed him to do whatever the hell he wanted at all times. And now the 76ers quite frankly, have a mess on their hands. Because while in the long run, I think Maxi could be 
a star for this team. He could be that number two guy behind Embiid. At 23 years old, you're not looking him for him to take over that role. You're not looking for him to take that mantle yet. That's what you want James Harden to be. You want James Harden to be the guy that's going to be a Hall of Famer uh, someday. But at the same time, how can you look yourselves in the mirror as a franchise and say, this is a guy that I want to give the Supermax to. This is a guy that we can look to at ownership and say, yeah, we're going to give him five years for $275 million. There's just no way. It, I mean, you would be paying him $60 million at one point in this contract when he's 37 years old. It's an outlandish deal to give a guy that does not keep himself in shape, has not played like a star since being there, and then in the most important game of your season, with your season on the line, you lose, you go home. And it being in your building, he's only able to get two shot attempts in the second half. And his excuse was, oh, the ball never made its way back to me. Dude, you're the point guard. What do you mean the ball didn't make its way back to you? I, I used to think that his most embarrassing performance was game six against the Spurs about five years ago, in which they lost by 30 points at a time where Manu Ginobili and Kawhi Leonard were not available for that team. But no, this, this is much worse. This is, you know, you almost feel like he didn't even try. It feels like the rumors and the speculation about him tanking it to get Doc Rivers fired just so they can get Mike D'Antoni there, the ultimate babysitter head coach, a guy who, just like Daryl Morey, let this guy get away with whatever he wanted in Houston so he can get D'Antoni his, what, fifth or sixth go-around as an NBA head coach and coach in the 76ers next year. And where does that really get you? At least, you know, for all of his shortcomings in win or go home games, at least Doc Rivers has a championship on his resume. At least he has finals appearances on his resume. What does Mike D'Antoni have? Does he even have a conference championship on his resume? How many? Think of how many failures that he's had over the years with the Phoenix Suns and the Houston Rockets. Now, he should have one finals appearance, but the league kind of screwed them over with uh, the Robert Ory, Steve Nash situation when they foolishly suspended Amari Stoudemire uh, for taking one step off the bench. But the Sixers are looking at a mess right now. And while I can't completely spike the football considering what the Brooklyn Nets have to deal with when it comes to both Kyrie and Ben Simmons does bring a little bit of joy um, and a little bit of a smile to my face, knowing that karma is kind of coming back to get James Harden.
Now, on the other side of the East, the Miami Heat got to sit back and chill on Sunday and watch the Celtics and the Bucks play Game 7 of their series. And, you know, a lot of excuses have been made for the Milwaukee Bucks the last couple days, whether it be <coughs> Chris Middleton not being available, you know, Giannis not getting much help from his supporting cast. The, but this series showed that uh, Drew Holiday is more of a number three, if anything else, that Brooke Lopez can be a liability as your center because more than clog up the paint, he just wants to step out behind the arc and, and shoot three-pointers. And the others never really had those moments that you expect. I kept waiting for that game where just out of nowhere, Bobby Portis would sink seven three-pointers and have uh, the crowd in Milwaukee uh, jacked up. And that never happened. Hell, they had... Plenty of opportunity to step on the Celtics' throat and take full control of this series because all throughout they had leads 1 0, 2 1, 3 2. They had home court advantage sway back in their favor on multiple occasions and never took advantage of that. And the biggest problem for them is. The Celtics had those guys step up and had those moments, whereas the Bucs never had that. I mean, who expected Al Horford to put up a 30-point game at this point in his career in the postseason when he's like, I don't know, offensively, maybe the fourth, more likely the fifth option on that team, including having a 16-point fourth quarter in game four. Or, now that... Finally, after what was kind of a quiet first couple of games of this series, Jason Tatum woke up and realized that I may be only 24, but I'm a budding superstar in this league. And for the final no, four games of this series, played like a rock star. Of course, you know, you can't expect what happened in Game 7. Like, game 7 just was one of the more unpredictable things I've ever seen. Not you know, the Celtics winning because they have such a great history, such a great tradition in Game 7s. But who saw Grant Williams coming? Now, this isn't something we should expect every game, of course. But he had the kind of game for them that, as I said, I kept waiting for either either Bobby Portis or a Pat Covington or even a Grayson Allen maybe to have for uh, the Bucks, And those guys, for the most part, played tentative. Those guys played scared throughout this series, whereas Grant Williams, they just kept feeding him open three-pointers. And this is a guy that shot 40% from the field uh, the, during the regular season or at least 40% from behind three-point. And he just kept getting left open. As he said after the game, could have taken 25 three-point shots. And now the Bucks, as defending champions, are left wondering what could have been. I mean, 
Could it have been a different series with Milton? Of course. He's always been the guy that seemingly, as great as Giannis is, Middleton is more of the closer on that team. You see a lot of his best work take place in the fourth quarter of uh, these games. But what also came back to strike the Bucks is not taking the end of the regular season seriously enough. Remember, five weeks ago, on the last Sunday of the regular season, they sat everybody. Their only concern was having Drew Holiday start and play three seconds into that game so he could get some kind of bonus, some kind of incentive in his contract. Whereas the Boston Celtics, they played everyone. They played their rear ends off, and that win pushed them to the two-seed over Milwaukee, guaranteeing that if they played in the this postseason, Game 7 would be up in Boston. Would it have been a, a different outcome if it was in Milwaukee? Maybe. But as we saw with Tatum in the last two games in Milwaukee, especially his what could go down as a legendary performance in Game 6, that the Boston Celtics are not phased by playing on the road. So, like, you know, you look at this series starting tonight, with it being the Celtics' 35th appearance in the conference finals. And yeah, they have not won many championships in recent memory. They have one title in the last 35 years, whereas their rival Los Angeles Lakers have eight. You get there enough, eventually you're going to break through. And they have a a depth to this team and a mindset to this team that on any given night, beyond just Tatum and Brown, somebody could step up and do something for this team. Whether it's Al Horford, whether it's Grant Williams, Marcus Smart. You know, we'll see if uh, you know Robin Williams plays for uh, them uh, in the. Uh, or Robert Williams, excuse me, plays for them in uh, this series. I know he tried to give it a go last series, but was unavailable the final couple of games. You know, offensively, they should have the edge over this Miami Heat team, especially with Tyler Hero seemingly disappearing in this uh, postseason. Uh, I mean, he goes from shooting 40% behind the arc during the regular season to now only 27% in the postseason. And I don't know if it's he's that much of a liability defensively or he just pissed someone off. But where the hell is Duncan Robinson? How, how come he's only playing garbage minutes, especially after having a great game one against the Hawks? He's hasn't been seen. He's You have to put out a police report to find this guy. So that now this just like in the West should be a very fun series. You're you're gonna have nights where the Heat just offensively are not able to match the firepower of the Celtics, even with some of these guys like Struce, like Victor Oladipo stepping up and having you no know, unexpected performances for <laughs> the Miami Heat. But in the end, there is a reason why the Boston Celtics are viewed as 
the favorites in this series. Because while Jimmy Butler may be the most experienced player throughout this and showed that he's a guy that raises his game from all-star level in the regular season to superstar level in the postseason. You know, the, the Celtics have age on their side and they have depth on their side. And add to it, their superstar after what was a quiet first two games against the Bucks, Jason Tatum has woken up and shown everyone, you know, you want to talk about Butler, you want to talk about Luka, you want to talk about the young stars of the league, you got to put some of that respect behind my name as well. Got to take another break here, come back on the other side and turn my attention to hockey. Yeah, that's right. Haven't talked much of that uh, during this uh, postseason, but it's really starting to get fun. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping Sports with M3 on this Tuesday afternoon here in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Hope you all had a great Monday. Hope you all had a great weekend. Didn't do the podcast yesterday just because there was bizarre weather concerns in the area. We thought we were going to get something that borderline near a hurricane. And in fact, it turned into a total dud, but in the end, it's better to remain safe than sorry and not take that risk there because it would have been at its worst, reportedly, when I was supposed to be driving home from here. But hey, I digress on that. And speaking of crazy, it was a crazy Sunday in the sports world because here you have the two game sevens in the NBA. Meanwhile, we see a statistical anomaly, something that, you know, on the surface comes off as a bit surprising, but in reality, we probably shouldn't be too too surprised by it with 
the gift that keeps on giving in the worst team in Major League Baseball, the Cincinnati Reds, continuing to play like the outright embarrassing disaster that they look like. Losing to the Pittsburgh Pirates one nothing, despite their pitching staff throwing a no-hitter. Yeah, that's right. You had rookie Hunter Green, who despite his record, has showed flashes of why he was a first-round pick several years back by the Cincinnati Reds. Pitching into the eighth inning without giving up a hit. And what's surprising, especially with him being a rookie, and he's over the 100 pitch count. Finally, they came out and took him out with 118 pitches after his fifth walk of the game. And I'm sure the front office of the Reds is pulling their hair out. The reliever, Art Warren, comes in and gets Key Brian Hayes to uh, ground out what they hope was a double play, but he beats it out to first base for a fielder's choice, allowing a run to score. And then the Pirates are held off the board in the top of the ninth inning to become the first team since 2008 to allow zero hits. And lose. In fact, this is the sixth time since 1900 that an occurrence like this has happened. Now, the problem here is it does not count in the record books as a no-header. Because the rule is you have to have pitched, whether it's one pitcher by himself or the staff in general, you have to go nine innings. So since they only got to pitch eight innings, does not count. But it's just another cherry on top on what has been an embarrassing start to this season for the 2022 Cincinnati Reds, who we sit here at this very moment and they are 9-26 and 26 on the season. Hell, they got off to a 2-13 and 13 start. Yeah, that's really going to inspire the fan base. Really, you know, give them good things to think about. We'll start like that in the, the first 15 games of your season and probably being about a week away from being 20 games under 500. Hell, by the end of this month, with the way they're playing, they could be 30 games under. And I can only imagine what Joey Votto is thinking looking at this crap. I, he had to be, even though he's not the Joey Votto he once was, he had to be outright furious uh, when... In spring training, they traded Jesse Winkler and Eugenio Suarez to the Mariners, essentially as a sign that they were giving up on the season before it even started. As I said, they're an embarrassment to this sport. They are just an embarrassment to the essence of competition that you wouldn't even, you know, you wouldn't even try to come into the season and see what happens. It's one thing if things blow up and you're 20 games under at the all-star break or the trade deadline, and then you start to sell off pieces. But to do that before the start of the season was just downright embarrassing and shameful. And that was kind of lost in what was a great Sunday in sports, considering we had four game sevens. Mentioned the two duds that were the... NBA's game sevens, but hockey, my God, 
the Stanley Cup playoffs, I know I haven't talked very much about it, have been awesome to watch so far. The fact that in the first round alone, we had eight games go to overtime sets us up for what is just hopefully more chaos to come. And I got what I wanted out of Rangers Penguins because for as much in the past, and I'll be the first to admit this, you know, as much as I've rooted for the New Jersey Devils over my lifetime, I have a Marty Brodeur jersey. I've been to, you know, quite a few Devils games um, over the years. Not just the Devils, but hockey in general as a sport, for as much as I pay attention to it, has always been the fourth child for me. And maybe I don't give it as much love, attention, appreciation as I should. Because even for someone who does not have their team in it, there's a lot of enjoyment. There's a lot of fun to this. Especially with watching Rangers versus Penguins, who... Even more so than the Philadelphia Flyers, I can't stamp off these teams, mostly because of their fan bases. You know, the Penguin fans are always whining and complaining anytime someone even breathes on the likes of Crosby, Malkin, Latang, any of their other countless stars on that team. And Ranger fans led by former NFL quarterback Boomer Esiason, anytime even the slightest call goes against them, they think that there's this magical button in Gary Bettman's office that gets opened up. It says, screw the Rangers on it. And he just presses that and cheats them out of it. I I don't know how you could complain about screw the Rangers in this series Maybe with the goal that was taken off the board in game one. Maybe you could argue that. But you were, remember, down three games to one. You were getting beat up and abused by the Penguins. I mean, Shostarkin even got pulled from uh, some of these games, especially after game four, getting given up five goals in the second period. It was pitiful, some of these performances that the Rangers were putting up. And in Game 5, and what was the turning point of this series in more than of one way, not just preventing the Penguins from clinching on your home ice, but you have to stand up for yourself. You couldn't continue to just keep getting your ass handed to you night after night after night. We know they're not a great... At, winning face-offs. That was something that was kind of a a disaster for them throughout this series and is not going to get any easier going up against Carolina in the next round where they're the fourth best in the league at winning face-offs. But you had to send a statement to the Penguins. And even though he's not considered a household name to most people that just commonly follow the Rangers, I'm sure Jacob Truba has now a special place in Ranger fans' heart for the hit that he delivered on Sidney Crosby, knocking him out of Game 5, keeping him out of Game 6, because that turned this series around. That that gave the Rangers not just a little bit of momentum 
allowed them to send a message to the Penguins saying, hey, we're not going to get pushed around anymore here. But like I said, it knocked out one of the faces of the league, one of the faces of the opposition from being involved in an important game number six. Hell, knocked him out from being part of the remainder of that game and gave the Rangers confidence. And it's weird, you know, it doesn't happen that often in sports coming back from 3-1. But the mindset should always just be, just win tonight. When you're that underdog team, when you're the team that is with your backs to the wall, just win tonight. Because as you go on, the pressure starts to mount. The pressure starts to build up on the team that had the 3-1 lead. And especially being without Crosby. You know, the Rangers showed a lot of grit, a lot of toughness in these last three games. Trailing in every single one of them, including trailing... 2 nothing in both games, 5 and 6. Even with them going down 3-2 heading into the third, you didn't really feel like they were out of it. You didn't feel like that they were truly done, especially you know the Penguins are playing with a backup goaltender. You figured that just give us an opportunity, give us one shot is what Ranger fans should be saying to themselves, and they're going to capitalize here. You had Zabanajak tie up the game in the third and five minutes into overtime coming off of a, a uh, power play. Panarin uh, wins the game, wins the series for the Rangers. And you just saw MSG light up in a way it hasn't in a while. And I know there's Penguin fans out there that are crying, complaining, saying, oh, it's not fair. The series would have been different without Crosby getting hit like that, you got to shut the hell up. Because prior to a couple of years ago, when the Capitals won their first championship, and now they've kind of been treated as you know somewhat of the golden child, even though I think you could say that the Lightning have probably taken that away with their back-to-back uh, cups. The Penguins, there was a period of time, you couldn't go near Crosby. You couldn't even... Poke him on the shoulder, whether it's him, you know, Latang, uh, Malkin, any of those guys, without getting a three-game suspension. The league has very much heavily protected you guys over the last 15 years. I know it sucks because this run for the Penguins, in all likelihood, is over. Now, if you believe the reports, Malkin and Latang are unlikely to return to Pittsburgh next year. At least one of them is going to probably follow their former assistant general manager up to Montreal next year. But you got three championships out of this group. That's a lot more than other people can say about their teams. You're still going to have Crosby, who's a very good player. You have other guys that are stepping up and becoming stars for this uh, uh Team Like Jake uh, uh, Gunsell, who was probably the best player on the ice throughout this entire series. And amongst others uh, that are going to be hopefully those guys for the years to come for Pittsburgh. So it's not like you're going to just disappear and fade into darkness. 
you're just not going to have likely two, maybe three Hall of Famers on your team for the foreseeable future. No, had a good run, but now you go back to what all of the rest of us have had to deal with over the years. And after you didn't, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, you had Flames stars go to overtime in their seventh game on uh, Sunday night with late into the night, uh, New Jersey's own Johnny Goudreau drilling a game-winning goal in overtime. And no, it took a lot of effort for uh, the Flames to uh, win this game. Hell, it took a lot of effort for the Stars just to be in this because on paper, the Flames probably should have won this game a couple of games ago. And if they had you know, mediocre goaltending, probably would have been done. But you've you can't say enough about the performance about Jake Ottinger because the fact that the puck was in uh, their t- side of the ice for most of the night and he had to face 67 shots, something that is unheard of compared to uh, the, his team only taking 28. I mean, that is stand on its head if it ever was. And you saw the respect, you saw the appreciation that the Flames had at the end of that game, at the end of the series. Each one of them to a man wanting to make sure they shook hands with Jake Ottinger to let him know, we respect what you've done. And being the fact that he's only, I think he's only 23, this should be a great springboard for him for years to come. Because yeah, it sucks to lose a game seven in that fashion. You you would almost rather get blown out than to give up the game-winning goal in overtime of a game seven. But it was a, a great player that finally got the edge over you. I mean, you. He had been stuffing Goudreau all night long. Goudreau had you know six or seven opportunities at him throughout this game. And finally, he was able to you know, get to the side of Ottinger and shoot one over his right shoulder. It happens, unfortunately. But it shouldn't take away from the performance of Jake Ottinger. But this win by Calgary sets up what is going to be a lot of fun coming into this second round. On the East, you've got a battle for Florida beginning tonight with the Panthers and the Lightning. The Lightning continuing their quest for a three-peat, something that has been unheard of for four decades now. Meanwhile, the Panthers were able to upend the Capitals in the first round. Tomorrow, you get the beginning of the Hurricanes versus the Rangers. The Hurricanes had a lot more trouble with the Bruins than most people expected in the first round, especially they were up 2-0 in uh, that series. And the Bruins had to battle their ass off just to make it a series in the end. Meanwhile, on the West, you've got the Colorado Avalanche going up against the St. Louis Blues. The Avalanche, who have been sitting back and chilling for a while now because they're the only team that won their series 
in less than five games in the first round. Everyone else was playing six or seven games. Meanwhile, they were able to sweep the Predators and have been able to kick their feet up. And you know, finally, what has got to be maybe the most anticipated series or definitely the most personal series the battle for Alberta when you've got the Flames going up against the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, you're going to get at least one Canadian team. and You're going to get one of Canada's teams advancing to the uh, conference finals. And it just so happens both of those teams play in the same province. So that's going to be a lot of fun. The trash talking the that probably is going on between those two fan bases, those two cities right now. And it should be a lot of fun in this second round, especially with what we saw in the first round. If that's a sign of things to come, it's another example of why nothing can match up to the intensity, the effort, and the fun of playoff hockey. And the effort and intensity of these guys had to go through these last two weeks, and now they've got to, to become champions, got to do it at least three more times. Oh, going to be so much fun to watch. Going to take one more break here, come back, close things up for this week and keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Only a few minutes left here, but let's uh, finish things out for this week and keep it sports and you know that some people just can't help but make things about themselves. Some people always have to make themselves a story. Some people always just have to be, quote unquote, that guy. And you don't understand it. And in this area over the last several years, we've had a lot of people that are that guy. I, I think if you're, if you're doing a 
you know, a who's been a jackass rankings or listening from all of the major sports teams. There isn't exactly that guy that's, you know, a villain for any of the local hockey teams outside of John Tavares when he left uh, the Islanders. But you look at it with the Jets, it was Jamal Adams. And for a year before that, it, it was Jamal Adams, even with all the trade talk and whatnot. For the Giants, it was probably Odell Beckham, although you could say that Joe Manager Dave Gettleman tried very hard to beat him out in that competition. For the New York Knicks, it became Julius Randle, probably the most surprising person on this list, considering he was so likable last year, having a breakout season, being uh, second team all NBA, and then the uh, obnoxious baby he became this year to the point where even with <coughs> him getting the contract extension, Nick fans already being done with this guy. That's how unlikable and un underperforming he was uh, this season. For the Nets, of course, it was Kyrie. That that goes without saying. For the Yankees, I would say it was either Luke Voigt or Gary Sanchez. Luke Voigt because he started complaining about his playing time. And then Gary Sanchez was just a whiny baby who every Yankee fan wanted gone and was complaining about the lack of support he was getting when the team when he was struggling. And gee, I wonder why that was the case. But of all of the athletes in this town, I think you can make a strong argument that no one more so has been that guy than Noah Syndergaard, who last week had to try to make a story about himself once again when his teammate Reed Dittmers threw a no-hitter against the Tampa Rays. And listen, there was... There was things beyond that no-hitter that kind of annoyed me with this game, especially with Anthony Rendon, who's always been a right-handed hitter, having the goal to turn around and hit from the left side of the plate for the first time in his life and hit a bomb off of backup infielder Brett Phillips, who was in pitching in mop-up time. But here's Reed Densmer, who had a career 6 ERA heading into this game. Highest ERA for any pitcher with at least 40 innings thrown prior to their no-hitter. Has this unbelievable feat. Didn't do it by striking a lot of guys out. Got a lot of uh, weak contact. And Syndergaard decides to just be that guy once again. When after the game, he posts on his Instagram story, this is what a real, and he quoted the word real, no-hitter looks like. And you know what that's a shot at, because a couple of weeks ago, the Mets had that no-hitter in which it took five pitchers to complete it. Of course, you know, the New York media would have a field day with it, and the responses on that and social media uh, would come back to Noah Syndergaard, and being that he has to be man of the people, man of social media, and can't just ever leave something alone had to have the the nerve to respond to it when he said on Twitter Wednesday, quote, hate to break it to you, but this 
song ain't about you. This is about Reed, a great teammate throwing a one-pitcher no-hitter, which is a rarity by today's game standards. Mets have a good team. Enjoy that instead of stirring up shit as do the Angels. So drop the drama and move on. Hey, dude, the drama was only created because you decided to post something on Instagram about a, quote, real no-hitter. All right? And hell, you would even, even in your statement where you try to backtrack from it and say, oh, it isn't about creating drama, you still create drama by saying, throwing a one-pitcher no-hitter. Why'd you have to go there? Instead, you could have just said, oh, no, I was, I mean, hell, you didn't have to post anything at all, let's be honest. But you should have posted congratulations to Reed Ditzmer rather than saying, oh, this is what a real no-hitter looks like. And bringing up that it was a one-pitcher no-hitter and as well as bringing up the rarity by today's game standards, everyone knew what you were talking about, even before you brought up the name of the Mets. He's still, you know, butthurt over the fact that the Mets didn't bring him back. The Mets never even made him an offer. And that's because the new regime was smart enough to realize that this guy is a pain in the ass who's not worth $20 million. This guy, while they did offer him the qualifying offer, we're probably very thankful he did not take it. Because you look at the Mets, there's been a very a very good vibe with this team this year. There haven't been those guys in that locker room that have tried to act like they run the locker room this year. Whether it be him, whether it be Marcus Stroman. Uh, I can't completely confirm this to be true, but it looks like Buck got Brandon Nimmo to stop with the whole running full speed to first base on a walk nonsense. You're not hearing any arguments between Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil over whether it's a rat or a raccoon racing through the hallways of the Mets dugout. And trust me, with the way Lindor is playing right now, something like that should be the last thing on his mind. And this guy who talks so much crap on social media and wants to make himself look like a good guy or be that guy. No, karma came back and bit him in the rear end last night. He was off to a pretty good start in his season, had an ERA of 2.45. And because of his um, shellacking uh, against uh, the Rangers uh, last night, getting knocked out in the first inning after giving up six runs, all of which earned, that ERA dropped or rose, excuse me, all the way up to three of 0.60 and he's got a whip of 1.23 and if Syndergaard would just stop concentrating on BS and just concentrate on on the field things then he could live up to the talent he's always been but it's nonsense like this that has always held him back and prevented him from being that future ace that top of the rotation pitcher that everyone's always thought he could be. Because surrounding the injuries the last couple of years, when he's been on the mound, he's pitched more like a 
average at best number three starter. And speaking of people that just need to calm the hell down, what the hell was up with Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson last week even suggesting the idea that the city of Dallas should have a second football team? He brought it up on Twitter based on a uh, tweet that was posted by uh, the NFL on CBS asking if the NFL announced a new expansion team, what city do you think deserved it most? And he said Dallas because they're about to pass Chicago for uh, the uh, third largest metro in the U.S. behind New York and L.A. and saying if they uh, can sustain two NFL teams, then Dallas can as well. Even saying, going as far as saying we would be able to sustain two NFL teams better than LA and New York. Yeah, okay. That, that, that's cute. You haven't seen the city of Chicago come out screaming and crying, saying, oh, we should get an, a second NFL franchise just because they have two baseball franchises there. And why is that? Because in Chicago, it's awake, breathe, eat, bears. That's it. Bear, as much as they love the Cubs, the White Sox appreciate and adore the Michael Jordan Bulls era, the Chicago Bears will always be the number one of that city. And even though you're about to pass them as the number three metro in uh, the U.S., that doesn't mean you should be getting a second football team. Hell, Jerry Jones would never allow it, even if it meant him making more money based on a new prospective owner having to pay rights fees to him to come into the area, or say they had to share the stadium like the Jets and the Giants do, and that means more money coming into his uh, um, ashtrays, he would never, ever consider that because it could potentially hinder his fan base, even as delusional and disgusting and nauseating as the Dallas Cowboy fan base is. Those fans love their, themselves some Cowboys. That is th their team. That is their number one. Not everybody has to have two NFL teams. You don't see, as I say, you don't see Chicago crying out for one. You don't see anywhere else in California crying out for one. You don't see you know, Green Bay crying out for a second team because it the Packers are religion up there. You don't see the city of Detroit, even for as embarrassing and dismal as the Lions have been over the years, being so bad that they, they don't even get a prime time game on this year's schedule. And I'm not even joking around. They're the only team that is not playing on prime time. Their Thursday obligation is filled by that afternoon game on Thanksgiving against the Bills. You don't see anybody else crying out for a second team. So why in the world should you be that one getting the second team? Makes no sense. And talk about making no sense. I'm going to close out with this today. And you know, I've been waiting for a week to talk about this. Tom Brady. Bravo. You know, 
just when I think that maybe we're going to get a week without Tom being in the headlines. Maybe we're going to get Tom just going to sit back and chill. You know, he finally came back out of retirement, uh, a retirement that we knew wasn't going to last. <laughs> and it just so happened it was after day 40 that he decided to uh, put the axe on this thing. And let's face it, he had never filed retirement papers. He never was really planning on walking away. He just wanted to be out in front of a story before Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport all were. But now Tom Brady has a new business venture that he's going to be dealing with. And it's as soon as his playing career is over, he's going to join Fox Sports as the lead analyst, replacing Troy Aikman, who left and went to ESPN. He's going to join by side with Kevin Burkhart as part of their new A-team as an announcer. Oh, and get this. Here's where it gets even better. You know what Fox is paying him? A 10-year contract worth $375 million. First off, bravo for Tom. Pulling off a deal like that. That's In that contract, he will make more than he has as a football player. Because he's only made about $302 million as an NFL player. And that's thanks to the discounts that he kept giving the Patriots all those years. But $375 million, that's double per year than what Tony Romo is making from CBS. That's more than what probably Troy Aikman is now making with ESPN to do Monday Night Football. I mean, Fox has got to be out of their damn mind. Because as great a player as Tom Brady is, let's face it, he doesn't have much of a personality. I mean, he's a likable guy in these interviews. Even though, no, no, people hate him because he's such a good-looking guy and he's the greatest quarterback of all time. But in general, he comes off as a very likable person. Good family man, good husband, good father. Just because he's a great football player, who's to say he's going to be a great announcer? I mean, look at all the countless other failures that there have been in the announce booth. Tiki Barber, OJ Simpson, Joe Theismann. Remember that failed experiment on Thursday night or Monday night football years back when him and Tony Kornheiser were part of ESPN's booth. And then, of course, the previous GOAT, Joe Montana. Hell, you even look at it, we have an example in front of us right now. NBC's not bringing back Drew Brees. They're moving on from him after just one year. And who who knows, was it a mutual decision? Was it NBC by themselves moving on? Does Drew have some kind of delusional idea that he's going to come back and play football? I mean, please, Drew, spare us on that. You were a disaster at the end with the Saints. But what... Fox is doing this just for attention's sake. And I can never, for the life of me, think of a time where I have watched a football game and said, oh, I'm more interested in this game based on the announcers. Who, I mean, I love Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. Big fan of Phil Simms. Ian Eagle, I think, does a great job on CBS calling games. 
but I'm not swayed based on an announced team or who his analyst is. I watch football because I love football. Hell, you see it. We even tune out, tune in and show up to watch Jets-Jaguars. That's going to be a Thursday night game this year. We watch, you know, even the bottom-feeding worst teams in the league play on Thursday night, Monday night, Sunday night, Sunday at 1 p.m., Sunday at 4.25, because we love the game of football. And we don't give a... You could pull me... And three people that are just walking the hallways of CSB right now and have us do, you know, the, the A group or the A block for football on Fox. And I'm sure the broadcast would be fine. I don't know if we'd be that great or provide that much of football insight. But the people wouldn't give a damn. They'd put the game on mute and just continue watching football. So I mean, Fox has got to be out of their God damn mine. I mean, you give Brady a lot of credit for pulling nonsense like this off. But please, $375 million for an unproven announcer? This has disaster and waste of money written all over it. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3. For Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. I'll be back next Monday, normal time, normal place. Until then, everyone have a great week. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Have fun in whatever you may be doing. And I'll talk to you next Monday. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you! Thank you for all the fun! Thank you! Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.